All right, if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And uh, this week, we've probably all got it memorized. How about if we read Matthew 5, 1 through 12 from memory? Anybody up for that? No? Okay. You can find it in your pew Bible on page 553. Again, we'll be reading Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these verses. God, we thank you for the encouragement and the promises that they are. Now, would you just show us uh, what it means to, uh, uh, to know peace? God, may your peace reign in our hearts this week. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, Kirk. We are moving quite rapidly through the Beatitudes here, and we are coming to uh, this eighth Beatitude, actually the seventh Beatitude, here in Matthew chapter 5, and specifically in verse 8, or verse 9 rather, where it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Of all the Beatitudes, this one is perhaps the one that almost everyone seems to admire and endorse. After all, who is against peace? Most people want peace. We even have a Nobel Peace Prize to reward those who, who go out of their way to promote international peace in a, in a dramatic way. And so on the surface, this beatitude in particular would seem to be the, the least radical of all the beatitudes. We look at it and we're like, what's so upside down about this beatitude? Who doesn't agree with this beatitude? Who doesn't want this beatitude? I mean, any philosophy, any religion which advocates peace has somewhat universal appeal. And so one of the main reasons why, even us here this morning, why this beatitude is so powerful in its appeal is because we, we understand, we know that we live in a world that's without peace. In fact, we live in a world without peace, and so we long for peace in a world that is afflicted by war and hostility and conflict. In fact, the most obvious fact of human history is that we, our history is characterized not by peace, but by conflict and hostility and war. Historians Will and Ariel Durant write in their book, Lessons of History, War is one of the constants of history and has not diminished with civilizations and democracies. 
It's been estimated that in the last 4,000 years of history, there have been less than 300 years without a major war. Billy Graham once commented that if someone was sent from Mars to report Earth's major business, he would in all fairness have to say that his chief industry is war. And the world's peacemakers, let's admit, they have a terrible record. As the peace we held today begins to collapse tomorrow. In the aftermath of World War II, Diplomats were very concerned with developing an agency for world peace. And so in 1945, the United Nations was founded with the goal to have succeeding generations free from the scourge of war. But since its inception in 1945, there has not been one single day of peace on earth. Not one. The scarcity of peace has prompted someone to suggest that peace is just that glorious moment in history when everyone stops to reload. The sober reality is we live in a world without peace. We do not have a world peace. We do not have national peace, even in our own country. We do not have political peace in this election year. We do not have economic peace. We do not have social peace religious peace, even racial peace. We do not have family peace. And most people in our world today do not even have personal peace within themselves. There seems to be no end across our country and across our world to demonstrations, marches, protests, riots, sit-ins, and wars. As we said, conflict, hostility, And violence are the order of the day, and so no day is in need of peace more than today. It's into this war-torn world without peace that Jesus now sends us to be his peacemakers. When he declares to us in the seventh beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Do you realize the idea of peace dominates the pages of the Bible. There are nearly 400 references to peace across the pages of God's Word. The Bible opens in Genesis with peace in the Garden of Eden. And it closes in the book of Revelation with peace in eternity. Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden interrupted that peace that God created for us, but at the cross, Jesus Christ became our peace. And someday, He will come again as the Prince of Peace, and He will establish a kingdom of peace here on earth. But until then, until that day, there is no peace on earth. It isn't that God doesn't want peace. God is not at war with the world, but the world is at war with God. But the good news, oh, there is good news in a world without peace, is that we can experience peace with God in Jesus Christ. This is why God now sends us out as His agents for peace, and Jesus declares to us, blessed are the peacemakers. If ever there was a need for peacemakers, it's now. Our world is in desperate need 
of the peace of God as a result of peace with God. This is the good news of peace that we promote. It's the good news of peace that, that we proclaim and that we are to be agents of for God. In fact, this brings us to a very radical calling that we have from our Heavenly Father and from Jesus Christ. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, what does that mean, though, exactly? In order to understand what this beatitude means, what Jesus is talking about here, it's crucial that we get a grasp of what a peacemaker is. So let's begin with the first half of that word, peacemaker, because it's really two words that are put together to make one word. You have peace and then you have maker. So what is peace? I would suggest that what people really want is comfort, not peace, or at least biblical peace. What most of us long for is not so much peace, but simply a quiet life. We want to be left alone. And we reserve the right to say to others, it's none of my business, it's your problem. In other words, we're not so much, if we're honest, we're not so much peacemakers as we are comfort seekers. This is why making peace, that is the kind of peace defined by God's word, is such a radical calling. Especially when you consider all the misconceptions of peace in our culture today. Notice this in your notes, some of these misconceptions. Biblical peace is not, it's not the absence of conflict. Biblical peace is not the avoidance of strife. It, it's not the appeasement of parties, nor is it the accommodation of issues. Some people define peace as the absence of conflict. Some may even define it as the avoidance of strife. But there's no conflict or strife in a cemetery. But none would hardly use a cemetery as an example of peace. As God sees that peace is far more than just the absence of something. Biblical peace, rather, is the presence of righteousness that causes right relationships with God and other people. Peace is not just stopping a war. Peace is resolving the conflict that leads to the war. And so when a Jew says to another Jew, shalom, or peace, he doesn't mean may you have no war. He means may you have all the righteousness and goodness God can give you. And so there's a big difference between a truce and peace. A truce just says you don't shoot for a while. We laid out our guns for a while. But peace comes when the truth is known, when the issues are settled and the parties reconcile themselves together. And so biblical peace as well, it never evades the issues, nor is it peace at any price. Peace in the Bible is always based on two things. It's based on justice and it's based on righteousness. Where justice prevails and where righteousness rules, there you will also have peace. And without those two virtues, lasting peace is not possible. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
Now, that seems to be quite the opposite of what Jesus says in this beatitude. But what Jesus means is that he did not come to bring peace at any price. Sometimes there will be opposition before there is harmony. Sometimes there will be strife before there is peace when you bring to light the truth of God's Word. The whole premise of a peacemaker's message is that we have to deal with what causes the conflict, the hostility, and war. What causes the separation? And that is sin. And people oftentimes do not like to hear that. While we could avoid the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we would not be helping people to make peace with God, who we are at war with, who we are enemies with. And so God's peacemakers are not just quiet, easygoing people who don't create waves in their family, their workplace, and in their neighborhoods and who avoid strife at all costs. Instead, they are seeking opportunities to help people make peace with God through the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the very meaning of the second half of the word peacemaker. The word maker here, or make, is a very strong word that Jesus uses that means to do or to make, and it implies initiative. It implies activity. In other words, peace must be made. Peace never happens by chance, and so peacemakers must take the initiative to help people make peace with God. Now, this should come as no surprise since sin is the great enemy of peace. Time and time again, the Bible, when you study God's Word from Genesis through Revelation, it traces human conflict to the same core issue of our sin, our sinfulness. Sin is what separates us from God. And it causes us to be at war with God the Father. And people's lack of peace with God causes their lack of peace with one another. And so James even begins to identify this core problem for us when he asks in James chapter 4, 1 through 2, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, and so you kill. You covet, but you do not get what you want, and so you quarrel and fight. No wonder God tells us earlier in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 2, there is no peace for the wicked. Why? Our sin has caused a separation from God. And until we deal with our sin, we will have no peace. We have no peace with God, and we do not have the peace of God. And so as long as people's hearts are sinful, there is going to be war in the world. There's going to be the conflicts and the hostility and the violence that we see. Sin is the great enemy of peace. So what then is the solution? What is biblical peace? Well, notice this, the meaning of peace here in your notes coming up on the screen. Biblical peace is the result of being reconciled to God and others through the gospel of Jesus Christ. People are without peace because they are without God. 
who is the very source of our peace. But in His great mercy and in His great grace, God sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross for our sin, which is the great barrier to our peace. And the result, Paul, is, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 13 and 14, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. Look at what, what Paul writes in Colossians 1, 19 through 22. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him, that is Jesus Christ, to reconcile to Himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. That's a glorious thing we just read there. That is the heart of the gospel right there. It is through Jesus' death on the cross that our peace with God has been accomplished. But how could the cross bring peace with God? Going back, we said to, for have peace, it, you must have two virtues, justice and righteousness. So how does this accomplished? How does God deal with our sin when we are sinners on the cross? Well, it's at the cross that all of God's wrath was turned away from those who deserved it, which is us. And it was placed on Jesus Christ who died in our place and on our behalf. In other words, Jesus was our substitute on the cross. And in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And those who respond to what Jesus did on the cross for us, the gospel, those who respond by faith in repentance are brought into a right relationship with God. And we can say with Paul in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified or declared righteous, through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder the Apostle Paul called the Apostle's message the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Our reconciliation to God is the very heart of the gospel. It's what it accomplishes for us. It's the reason Jesus came to this earth. It's the reason we exist as a church, to be reconciled to God, to have our separation come together, to have our sin dealt with, and now we can have a relationship with God. We can be at peace with God. Other organizations exist to solve human problems. Some of them do a decent job, others do not so good. But the church our church, all churches, we exist to solve the greatest problem in all the world. And that is the barrier that exists between God and people, and only the gospel can bridge that gap. And so God's purpose is not merely that we should be at peace with Him, that's first and foremost, but it is also that we should now be peacemakers for Him. That is, those of us who now have experienced 
the gospel. We put our faith and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we now have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And we now have the peace of God in our hearts. For those of us where that is true, God now sends us out to be his agents of peace. We're his peacemakers. Now, what does that mean? Well, Paul calls it we're ministers of peace. Look at this in your notes with me. Peacemakers labor as ambassadors for Christ. And what do these ambassadors do? What are we laboring as? We are imploring people to be reconciled to God and others with the message of reconciliation. We are God's peace corps in the truest sense. Now, the heart of this comes in the passage here where Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. Look what it says. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's our message. That is the hope of the gospel. That is the, what the world needs to hear. There's no greater means of bringing peace than by imploring people urging people to be reconciled to God first and foremost, and then to be reconciled one to another through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This means other people's peace. That means it's our business. But what, though, does that mean in practice? What does being a peacemaker involve for us on an everyday basis in our life? Well, notice here are three action steps for us to take. Number one is first to make peace with God yourself. Make peace with God, God yourself. Before we came to Christ, as we already said, we were at war with God, enemies of God. But when we received Jesus Christ as our Savior, our battle with God, do you get this? It ended and our peace with God began. And now we enjoy the very peace of God in our hearts. Of course, we have to maintain this peace. And so every time there is sin in our lives, every time we stumble and fall and we sin, the peace is interrupted in our relationship with God. It separates us and it is broken. But when we confess our sin, God forgives us and he cleanses us and he makes us clean all over again, and our peace with God is restored. Our relationship with him is restored. And so the very first action step for us to consider this morning, everyone here, is to evaluate, do I have peace with God? My sin separates me. My sin causes me to be at war with him. And have I received, have I placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ to where I have peace with with God Almighty, through faith in Jesus Christ. Make peace with God yourself through 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. Having received peace with God and having experienced the peace of God, we are now ready to be God's peacemakers in this world. And we begin this ministry of peace by, number two, implore others to make peace with God. Being a peacemaker involves doing whatever it takes to bring others into the same relationship of peace that we are now in with God. And the best way to do this it's simple. It's to tell people about the gospel of peace in Jesus Christ. It's to implore them to be reconciled to God before it's too late. And there's an urgency about this. Because Jesus is coming. And once He comes, it's too late. God has given us, in the words of Paul, a ministry as peacemakers. And Paul calls it this ministry of reconciliation, which means God has equipped us to be his peacemakers in the world. Peacemakers get their hands dirty. Peacemakers partner with the Holy Spirit in the work of reconciliation. Peacemakers know and they understand how blessed they are. And so they express their happiness in this way. They love to announce the good news that peace comes when sinners are reconciled with God. Of course, this means that peacemakers must let others in, know, let them know of a troublesome fact that they might not realize. That, hey, you're at war with God. You're at war with your Creator. Your sin has caused you separation. And the reality is, few people actually see themselves as hostile toward God. And so peacemakers begin by helping people to acknowledge this reality, this truth about themselves, and that the only way that it can end is when we embrace or put our faith and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yes, this message of peace, it does not sit well with some people. Sometimes a lot of people, as we will see next Sunday in the last beatitude, where Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And so sometimes that is the result when we go out into the world as peacemakers. Nevertheless, peacemakers labor as ambassadors for Christ because we cannot help but share the good news of Jesus with our family, our friends, our co-workers, and our neighbors our colleagues and classmates, as peacemakers, we care. We care about their spiritual condition, and we don't want them to be at war with God anymore. And at times, this means speaking directly. At other times, this means speaking very gently. And this is certainly not an easy task. It's not an assignment calculated to make us comfortable or even popular. Not everyone will thank us for our interest in their peace. But Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the comfortable. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. The third action step is to live in peace with others. God's goal in redemption is not confined to just making peace between ourselves and Him. What God has done for us is intended to radically affect the way we act toward one another here this morning. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, same sermon, Sermon on the Mount here, a few verses later, after these Beatitudes, in verses 23 and 24, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, 
leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. In other words, what Jesus is telling us here is that what's more important than bringing my gift to the altar is getting right with my brother or sister so I can bring my gift with a heart that is right with God. Jesus is telling us that peace with others is so important that the worship of God in warfare with others cannot exist at the same altar. Now, the pathway to peace is the same as the pathway to peace with our Heavenly Father. I mean, think about this with me. When there is uh, something wrong in our relationships with one another, normally a conflict, hostility, uh, oftentimes when Darla and I have a problem in our marriage, a conflict, it's because I've offended her or she's offended me. And you can guess which is most of the time which side of that's on. Most of the time... It's me. I've done something. I've offended. I, I have sinned. And that wrong, that offense, that sin has what? It's caused a separation in our relationship. And you can't just sweep that under the rug and hope that five days later everything's going to be hunky-dory. The, the sin has to be dealt with. Otherwise, the one who is offended... Oftentimes, when it's not dealt with, and they don't deal with it themselves, there's bitterness, there's resentment, and it festers in the heart. And so you have to deal with it. And so the path, we are, the sin has caused separation in our relationship. What is the path to reconciliation? To bring our relationship back together. It's the same way with, in, with our relationship with God the Father. It is through Forgiveness. Forgiveness is the key. I have to admit, Darla, I wronged you. What I said, oftentimes it's what I said, gets me in trouble. Or what I have done, I, I admit that. I acknowledge this hurt you. This was wrong. Do you forgive me? Will you forgive me? And of course, it's on Darla's part of the responsibility to now extend forgiveness to me. And when this happens... Our relationship is reconciled now. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that everything is fine in the sense of we've dealt with all our conflicts and issues, because that is a process, too, a lot of times. That, all right, Bruce, this is a habit of yours. This little thing that caused the, our separation, we need to talk about this and find some solutions and deal with this. You know, that often has to take place in a relationship. But the path to peace between one another, you can't get around it. It's forgiveness. It's, it's acknowledgement of, hey, I'm wrong. Will you forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. But oftentimes in our world, we don't want to deal with that. And so it leaves a turmoil in relationships. It leaves a lot of baggage in relationships. And we wonder why. Even as believers in Jesus Christ, our families are filled with even so much conflict and strife and hostility that really looks no different than the world in their families and in their workplaces and the jobs. Because we haven't taken the time to go and be reconciled. As peacemakers, we are to live in peace with all people. 
Paul tells us in Romans 12, verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Paul means much more than don't go around picking fights. We may think we're living at peace with someone or everyone simply because we don't pick fights with people. But listen to the context of Paul's statement here in Romans 12 in the greater context of verses 17 through 21 when he says, do not repay anyone evil for evil which is kind of the motto of our world. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so the context here is one in which someone is, well, they're kind of out to get us, it seems like. Someone has hurt us. Someone has done something wrong to me. And I'm hurt, I'm offended by this. And the question is, how are we going to respond when that happens? And it seems we have three options of response. First option is we can, well, we can get back at them. We can punch them in the nose. Or we can just do something mean to them. And the motto of this option is, hey, fight fire with fire, repay evil with evil. And we're all familiar with this option. The second option is, is that we can refuse to respond at all. We can just say nothing and do nothing at all. And the motto of this option is fight fire with a wet blanket. The only problem is it doesn't deal with the heart of the conflict. But even this approach is not enough for Paul, and that's why he goes on. He wants us to consider a third option, that of overcoming evil with good. In other words, don't fight fire with fire. Don't even fight fire with a wet blanket. Rather, fight fire with an invitation to a barbecue. In other words, do good to them. That's what Paul means by being a peacemaker. It's the essence of his statement. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Being a peacemaker means that we are to do whatever is within our means, whatever is within our power, to live in peace with those around us. Will peace always be the outcome of our efforts? No. No. We understand that. Sometimes peace is not possible. But we must make every effort to live in peace with everyone. How marvelous it is to see then how God uses people like us here this morning to be the very peacemakers of the world. Get this, all the diplomats, ambassadors, and presidents, and statesmen, and kings of the world can never bring the kind of peace that Jesus is talking about here. And yet God uses people like us to be his ambassadors for peace. What a radical, radical calling this is. Blessed are the peacemakers. And with this radical calling, let me tell you, comes a very radical blessing. Look at it here, number two. He, Jesus says, for they shall be called sons of God. Now I can't think of a better thing to be called than sons of God. Now I'm proud to be an Adrian. I love being in the Adrian family, and I, I enjoy representing the Adrian name. 
And I'm happy to be the firstborn son of my father. But nothing compares to being a son of God. And that's exactly what Jesus says peacemakers will be called. Sons of God because they are displaying the very likeness of God the Father. We've all heard the saying, like father, like son. And that's exactly the idea here when Jesus uses this term that we shall be called sons of God. Notice this in your notes. When you do the work of peacemaking, you, are, you emulate the God of peace and you are regarded as a son of God by your Father in heaven. Now, at first glance, you may assume that sons of God means the same thing as children of God. But those are actually two different terms. A child of God is one who is simply, they're part of God's eternal family. And it is a statement of your position in God's family. I am a child of God. I'm a son of God or a daughter of God because of my faith in Jesus Christ. He's now declared me righteous and he has adopted me into his eternal family. That is a statement of your position that can never change. Hallelujah, right? Never change. Doesn't matter. You, can't, you don't earn that, therefore you cannot lose that, that position in God's family. But this phrase that Jesus uses, son of God, is one who, the, the idea is one who is like the family. It's a statement of character, of behavior. They, are, they not only carry on the family name, but now a son of God, what they do is they reflect God's peacemaking character in how they live. And so peacemakers are those who are at peace with God, and now they show that they are really truly children of God by imploring others to be at peace with God and living with peace or in peace with all people. No wonder God says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Do you realize how significant this is? To be a peacemaker is to give you a reputation where it matters most. In heaven. In heaven. Because at the same time, this also means you will not necessarily be called sons of God by the people here on this earth. In fact, people may call you, as we will see next Sunday, derogatory names. They may insult you and ridicule because of your peacemaking efforts. But that's not what counts. It's what God calls us that counts. And He calls us sons of God. Our Lord is on a recruiting mission this morning. He's looking for volunteers to join God's Peace Corps. And He's looking for people to be God's peacemakers in the world. Which leads me to ask this simple question. Are you a peacemaker or are you a troublemaker? The opposite of peacemakers is troublemakers. And the Lord knows we don't need any more troublemakers in our world today. We don't need any more troublemakers in our workplaces, at our schools, in our homes, our families, even here at church. We desperately need more peacemakers. In fact, one author writes, listen to what he says. 
If we are not peacemakers but troublemakers, there is high probability that we are not true children of God. He goes on to write, Peacemakers are sometimes troublemakers for the sake of peace, but not troublemakers who spread rumors and gossip about others. If you are constantly inciting discontent, if you find joy in the report of others' scandal, if you are ultra-critical, always fault-finding, if you are unwilling to be involved in peacemaking, if you are mean, if these negative qualities characterize your life, then you are a troublemaker and not a peacemaker. And he goes on and he says, listen, we need to stop and examine whether or not we are in the family of God. Whether or not we have truly experienced the peace of God by Jesus Christ. These are sobering words. But the good news of the gospel is that a troublemaker, listen, we can become a peacemaker. Most troublemakers are creating conflict in their external world because they do not have internal peace. But when we experience the grace of God, then we can experience the peace of God in our own hearts. And this is what God offers us in His Son, Jesus Christ. Peace with God that results in the peace of God. And so Jesus declares, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You know, I wonder what would happen if we made a commitment to be God's peacemakers here this morning. What if this morning you made a personal commitment? I'm going to be this in my life. I'm going to be one of God's agents for peace. I want to invite you to pull out this insert here where it says the peacemaker's pledge. It should be in your bulletin. You'll find it there. Just pull it out. And I want us to read through this. This is the peacemaker's pledge. This is what I'm inviting you and asking you to pledge to commit to in your own life. Look what it says. Notice it at the top. As people who are reconciled to God by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we believe that we are called to respond to conflict in a way that is radically different from the way the world deals with conflict. We also believe that conflict provides opportunities to glorify God serve other people, and grow to be like Christ. Therefore, in response to God's love, in reliance on His grace, we commit ourselves to respond to conflict according to the following principles. First one is glorify God. Instead of focusing on our desires or dwelling on what others may do, we will rejoice in the Lord and bring Him praise by depending on His forgiveness, wisdom, power, and love as we seek to faithfully obey His commands and maintain a loving, merciful, and forgiving attitude. Number two, get the log out of your own eye. Instead of blaming others for conflict or resisting correction, we will trust in God's mercy and take responsibility for our own contribution to conflicts, confessing our sins to those we have wronged, asking God to help us change any attitudes and habits that lead to conflict, and seeking to repair any harm we have caused. And then number three, gently restore. Instead of pretending that conflict doesn't exist or talking about others behind their backs. We will overlook minor offenses or we will talk personally and graciously with those whose offenses seem too serious to overlook, seeking to restore them rather than condemn them. When a conflict with a Christian brother or sister cannot be resolved in private, we will ask others in the body of Christ to help us settle the matter in a biblical manner. 
And then the last one is to go and be reconciled instead of accepting premature compromise or allowing relationships to wither, we will actively pursue genuine peace and reconciliation. How? Forgiving others as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us in seeking just and mutual beneficial, beneficial solutions to our differences. By God's grace, we will apply these principles as a matter of stewardship, realizing that conflict is an assignment, not an accident. We will remember that success in God's eyes is not a matter of specific results, but of faithful, dependent obedience. And we will pray that our service as peacemakers will bring praise to our Lord and lead others to know his infinite love. I, I ex exhort you, I encourage you to make this pledge, the peacemakers pledge. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. And I close with Paul's prayer in 2 Thessalonians 3.16 where he writes, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. Heavenly Father, give us the grace and the power to be your peacemakers, imploring people to be reconciled to you. And when people look at our lives, I pray that there would not be a trail of broken lives behind us, but there would be a trail of redeemed lives and that our church would be known as a place of redemption that's full of peacemakers. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're not going to sing or have a chorus of invitation or anything like that, but I want to encourage you to take this insert home, the Peacemaker's Pledge, and, and look over it, consider it, and evaluate, Dan, do I live my life by this? And would you prayerfully consider making this pledge to go out as an agent of peace on behalf of God, to be his peacemaker? And then next Sunday, we will conclude this whole series with Blessed Are Those Who Are Persecuted. And that just entices you to really come back, right? No, I'm sorry, it'll be a great message. And next Sunday, don't forget, it's Memorial Day weekend. And so there's only one service. There's no discovery hour. One service right here in our auditorium at 1045. And so take note of that. All right, let's receive our morning offering, and, uh, and then we'll be dismissed.